All right, let's go ahead and turn, please, in your Bibles to John chapter 17. If you're new to Sovereign Grace or you're visiting, we usually just take a few verses of the Bible. We've been in the Gospel of John now for over a year, I believe, and we usually just take a few verses and exposit that and slowly take ourselves through that. But today I'm going to attempt to do a whole chapter, which is the high priestly prayer of the Saviour. And so if you want a title for this message, if you're making notes, which I always want to encourage you to do so, I've called it The Day... Jesus prayed for you. And let's read this chapter together. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world sanctify them in the truth your word is truth as you sent me into the world so I have sent them into the world and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth I do not ask for these only but also for those who believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Our Father, as we gather around the word today, we, we do indeed gather around an incredible moment, because this is the day you heard the cry of your son, And your son prayed to you. And we have it recorded for us right here. Oh Lord, would you open our eyes today to behold the wonders of your law? Would you open our eyes so that we can see how glorious these truths are? And would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us? Would you confront us? And Lord, would you have your way in our midst? In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a teenager... Many years ago, we still had tapes in those days. And I used to have a tape collection. Some of it was stuff you actually bought from the the shop. And others of it would just be stuff that you stole off the radio and then made your own tapes. And most people seem to do that at some stage or another. It's a lot of fun. And then I remember the tape-to-tape recorder coming out. And just, man, this is so cutting edge. I was so excited about the whole thing. But when I was a teenager and we all had tapes... It was decided, I don't know who decided it, but someone decided that you can tell so much about someone by looking at their tape collection. And some people would come over to your house, your friends, and they look at your tape collection and go, oh, wow, I can tell so much about you from your tape collection. And you'd go, yes, yes. And then you go to their house and you look at their tape collection, no idea what you're looking for. But you look at that, oh, I can tell so much about you you're just so grateful they never said to you oh what can you tell because you'd have no idea what you were going to say but it was the in thing to say that you could discern a lot about somebody from their tapes well when I got older that changed a little bit to the fact that you can tell so much about somebody from their book collection and that I can understand a little bit more if you go around somebody's house and they have the Beano annual from 1961 to 2003 it's a fact that they probably like They probably like comics. They like that type of thing. If you go around their house and they've got shelves full of cooking books, they probably like cooking. You can tell things about a bookshelf. And yet, as a Christian, I think one of the main ways we can tell so much about people, in particular what matters to people, is by the way they pray. And in particular, the content of their prayer. What they pray about. You can discern, I think, a lot about somebody, a lot about what matters to somebody from the content of their prayer, what they cry out to God for, when before then they just have a blank sheet. Now, I want you to imagine then this morning that you have the privilege of listening into someone 12 hours before they die. They know they're going to die. You are trying to discern that. You are unaware of the exact content of when they're going to die. But 
12 hours before they die, they are gathered in a room with all their closest friends and you have the privilege of listening in to discern what are they praying about. You know, that would indeed be a privilege, would it not? Because I think you'd find out in that moment what really matters to that person. What really matters to them about the people around them? And what are they actually going to ask God the Father for? That would be a distinct privilege to listen into that. Well, this morning, folks, we do have that privilege. Because that is the scene here in John 17. Twelve hours before Jesus Christ is hanging on a cross, he gathers his disciples together, his beloved disciples, those he has loved to the end, in a room... And he prays. And overarchingly, I think what you discern then in this text is what matters most to Jesus. He's going to die. This is the last time they will hear him pray for them. You're going to discern then what matters most to him. Knowing full well that he's going to die, he cries out to God for them. Some commentators say this is the Holy of Holies of the Gospel of John. And I think they're probably right. They're not trying to say that this is more set apart or special than the others, but they are trying to comment on the fact that, yes, indeed, we find here what is most important to Jesus. See, just by way of background, to bring us all up to speed, we have been in the upper room for two and a half months. From chapter 13 onwards, for two and a half months, we have been in the upper room. But to Jesus and his disciples, that's just been one night. All what we have studied over the last two and a half months is just one evening for the Savior. It started with him gathering his disciples together the night before he died. He, he has a Passover meal with them. He changes the Passover meal to be the Lord's Supper, explaining to them that the bread and the wine that used to point back to the lamb, not anymore. This is now going to point towards me, towards what I have going to, what I am going to do to you on Calvary, for you on Calvary. Well, at that point, the disciples get a bit excited again, as you can remember. They think that this is a good opportunity. He's talking about what's going to happen tomorrow. This is going to be good because quite clearly he's going to kick the Romans out tomorrow. And so Jesus, just to confirm, who's your favorite disciple? And I'm hoping it's me because I want to be at your right and I want to be at your left. And as he starts to talk to them about that by getting on his hands and knees and wrapping a towel around his waist and washing their feet and helping them see, you know what, guys, True greatness isn't about your position. True greatness is about serving each other, about being unified and being together as one, giving your lives away for each other. In that whole process, he talks to them about Peter and how Peter is going to deny him three times before the cock crows. And he explains to them that Judas is indeed going to betray him, at which point Judas runs out the door. And of course, the disciples are freaking out what's taking place. And he discerns that. So he talks to them and explains to them, guys, let not your hearts be troubled because they don't need to be. For I'm going, but in effect I'm going to come back because the Holy Spirit is going to come and be with you. I'm going to adopt you into the family of God. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. You're going to have together people in the context of the local church and heaven is going to be your home. So all of this is temporary. He explains to them then on the back of that that they are going to be persecuted. This isn't going to be a joy ride. And of course they're freaking out again. So he explains to them about the joy that they're going to have in the gospel. And that their sorrow is only going to last for a short time. And then it's going to change to profound joy as they realize he's risen again. 
And everything he said then about himself is indeed true. And how the joy of the gospel then is deep and irrevocable as we delight ourselves in it. But now, as he makes his way to the door to head out to the Garden of Gethsemane and then ultimately the cross 12 hours away, as the disciples arise with him and he gets to the door, He does what any good pastor is going to do for those he loves. He prays for them. He cries out to God. He begins by praying for himself. Look again at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour has indeed come. He's aware. This is it. He's aware this is what I've been sent for. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And Jesus is now, having already distinguished and told the crowd that his hour had come, already distinguished and told the disciples his hour had come, he now communicates to the Father and says, Father, I I know this is it. I know the hour has come. I said, Father, glorify your son. What he is, in effect, is saying is, Lord... Help me. Lord, I know this is what you've sent me to do. But Lord, this is so hard. A prayer that he begins to then echo in Gethsemane as well. But Lord, help me and help me to achieve what you've sent me to achieve. And Lord, would you glorify then your son? Would people realize that through and in me and my work, I have brought together the strands of your holiness and your justice and your love for a sinful world? Lord, would you glorify your son as they see me hanging on a cross? Would they discern and realize through generation and generation and generation that I have paid it all for them? So, Father, the hour has come and glorify your son. And then he very quickly takes the eyes off himself and begins to put his gaze on his followers. And, you know, as he does, folks, please observe this. This is the day that Jesus prayed for you. He's in the upper room. Twelve hours before he's about to die. And you're on his mind. So you notice with me in verse 9. He says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. He's talking there very specifically about the disciples. The men that are in front of them. He's saying, look, it's not that I don't want to pray for the world, but Lord, I pray for these in this moment. Father, please. But then in verse 20, he says this. I do not ask for these only. Same guys. Don't just ask for these disciples only. No. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. Talking about you. He's talking about people that have been generations in the future that will get saved through the word that the disciples begin to preach all the way through Acts and it goes across the nations. It's as if he's looking from the hill of time in this moment and saying, I know, Lord. Father, I know who you're going to bring to me. I know them by name. And so, Father, I don't just pray for these people that are in the room today. Lord, I pray for Sovereign Grace Church in 2013. 
Lord, I pray for all of those. Pray for Scott. Pray for Emma. Pray for Giovanni. Pray for Matt. Father, I don't just pray for these, I pray for them. Isn't that incredible? And I think that does change the way our emotions should interact with John chapter 17. As we interact with it, what we discover is not only what matters most to Jesus. What we discover, if we're discerning, is what matters most to Jesus for you. Because he's praying for you. And so three things that I want you to observe this morning. The night that Jesus is going through such great anguish 12 hours before he dies... The night when he prays for you, he declares three things in his prayer to the Father that quite clearly matter to him most about you. And I pray these would strengthen you and encourage you and indeed focus you. Number one then, what matters most to Jesus for you? Number one, that you as his disciple would be word saturated. Completely and utterly truth and word saturated. See, there is no doubt a regular and frequent emphasis put on the word and put on truth in this prayer. So look again with me at verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Now that doesn't just mean... Lord, keep them in your, in your name, God. That's so bizarre. In the context and in biblical times, to keep somebody in somebody's name, somebody's name meant their character, their personhood, the values of who they really are. And so he cries out, Lord, keep them in your character. Lord, keep them in who you really are. Keep them focused on the truth of who you really are. And as a crescendo of all those verses, 6, 8, and 11, in verse 17, he then goes on to say as follows. It's a crescendo of all what he said. Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself Why? That they also may be sanctified in truth. See, Jesus is not talking there about sanctification as we can frequently know it and talk about it in sovereign grace. He's not talking about sanctification being the progressive change where we become more and more like Jesus Christ. That's not what he's on about there when he's talking about sanctify them in the truth and hold them to the truth. Sanctify in that context literally means being set apart, being different, being committed to something other. And so what Jesus Christ is saying is, Father, sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. Lord, set them apart. Let them have a commitment to something else. Lord, help them to be different from the world. Lord, set them apart and commit them to your truth. 
Because your word is truth. And you know what? What Jesus is really saying then, I think, more than anything, is, Lord, help them to be word-saturated. Help them to be that devoted to the truth and amazed by the truth that it works into every area of their lives. And to be honest, in light of Scripture, that shouldn't surprise us at all. But look with me at Psalm 1. Hundreds of years before Jesus ever arrives on the scene, the psalmist gives us what in effect is the blessed way. And in Psalm 1, here's what he says. Hundreds of years before Jesus said anything, before he's praying for you. He says, blessed is the man, blessed, brach, this whole premise of supremely happy. It's even in the plural. So happy in all areas of life, genuinely, not that they go through just whatevers and it's just every, everything's great and we just have to put a sort of American really nice white smile on all the time. He's not what he's saying. No offense, Sarah, because obviously you don't do that. But you don't have to do that. It's not what he's talking about. What he is talking about, those through life's challenges, there'd be a genuine joy, a happiness. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But, this is what he's like, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. This man is word saturated. And this is what he's like. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Hundreds of years before Jesus is born, the blessed way comes out. Blessed is the man. How? Well, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Don't walk in the way of sinners. Don't spend your time at the seat of scoffers, but instead become word-saturated. Delight in the law of the Lord. Delight in the scripture day and night. Meditate on it. And you know what will be the fruit? Oh, the fruit will be refreshment and nourishment, stability and durability. You will flourish. You will be fruitful. And in fact, verse 3b, in all that you do, you will prosper. Hundreds of years before Jesus arrives, the blessed way is, is told to us. And then John 10 comes on, onto our radar, which the choir read out this morning. Jesus himself says, I am the good shepherd. For the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and that in abundance. He's declaring to them about the cross. He's declaring to them about what he's going to achieve on the cross in their place. Through Calvary, they will be able to enter into the joy of the Lord. But the question still resounds, but how do I experience that joy? How can I position myself in my life to experience this life and that of abundance? How can I position myself in my life to ensure that in all that I do, I prosper? Well, I think John 17 answers that. Because 12 hours before Jesus dies, thinking about you, his Lord sanctify them in the truth because your word is his truth. My friends, the whole backdrop to that is that the blessed way that was declared to us in Psalm 1 has not changed. The blessed way of being a people who meditate on God's word day and night has not changed. The way of blessing, the way to live lives that are durable and stable and flourishing in and out of season 
is to still give ourselves to God's word. Nothing has changed. Jesus Christ has made it possible on the cross to experience life and that in abundance. But that isn't just like, it's, it's not some psychic weird moment where we just go, oh, I'm so happy. It doesn't work like that. He's saying, I've opened the door to that reality for you. So walk in the blessed way. Open yourselves up to this word then. Hold on to this word. Meditate on this word and you'll be stable and durable and flourishing. And Lord, this is so important to me, Father. I'm going to pray for them in this. I'm going to pray for Sovereign Grace Church Sydney in this. Twelve hours before I die. Do you see that? How important is it to the Savior that we be word saturated? It's important enough to him that 12 hours before he died, he prays for it for you. See, folks, let me ask you then, how is your meditation on God's word going right now? How's it doing? At the start of the year, I had the privilege of speaking on Psalm 1. And we tend to leave excited about the year ahead. I'm going to be a person committed to God's word because this is so important and I get it. Well, we're now in May. How's it going? How's your meditation of God's word going? There is no plan B. It's not like you can say, well, I just, I just, just feel so unrefreshed at the moment. I, I feel so unfruitful. Okay, Psalm 1 tells us that if we meditate on the word of the Lord day and night, you, you're not going to feel that. Are you doing that? Well, no, because I'm awful busy and I've got a lot of stuff going on and well, look, I'm just a pastor. All I can do is say, well, this is what it says. And I don't believe he lies. So get into the word. They tend to be short conversations. It's not complicated. The issue is whether we're willing to believe it and apply it. How's your meditation of Bible reading going? And more importantly, how are you doing with allowing his precious word guide you in areas of life? That's what this man was doing, the blessed way. This man was reading it and meditating on it and then inclined to understand the grid work of Scripture as he was living his life then is saying, Lord, I just, want to, I just want to please you. I said, Lord, I'm not just going to sit at the feet of scoffers. I'm not going to listen to sinful mankind. I'm not going to allow my primary influence to be that of the world. Lord, I want the primary influence to be your word because your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so, Lord... What do you want me to do? He's guided by the word. Are you guided by the word? Who do you listen to most? People in the world? Your own feelings? Or God's word? God's lamp? Folks, this is so important. and so important because it has an incredible opportunity attached to it. I would be a poor pastor not to scream to you all the time, please meditate on God's word. Because there are great promises attached to a people that do that, that listen to it and meditate on it and apply it. But I submit to you, it's not only incredible opportunity that Jesus is praying for you about here. He's also praying this prayer for you, not only because incredible opportunity, but also generally, I think, incredible concern. And this is the other side of the coin that I think is often not preached. And not preached in peril. Because the second thing that I think we discover that Jesus is passionate about, that matters most to Jesus about you, is this. Number two, that you, as his disciple, 
would be kept. See verse 11 again. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. There is no doubt in my mind that in that moment, he has incredible opportunity attached to it for you. He's aware, Lord, I love them. Father, I'm passionate about them. Lord, in my absence, I want this to go incredibly well for them. So, Lord, please keep them in your word. Lord, keep them in your name. Sanctify them in your truth. Lord, help them. Give them the strength and the understanding to be word-saturated in their lives. There is no doubt that part of Jesus' mindset in that moment relates to incredible opportunity. But it's not just that. Because as you read verse 14, what you discover is he's also praying this validity of being keeping hold of the truth, not only for opportunity, but because of incredible concern too. Let's read it together, verse 14. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Listen to this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. It's an argument against monasteries. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. My friends, what comes into view here, I think, is a very real spiritual danger. A very real, clear and present danger that can and does, I think, affect all followers of Jesus Christ. You want to know how clear and important it is to the Savior? It's so clear and important to him that 12 hours before he dies, he gives himself to praying for you about it. It is so important to him that he gives himself in prayer for you. And yet all too many Christians, I believe, are naive to this danger. Almost unaware of this danger. Almost live their lives as if to say, well, surely that danger is just more myth than reality. It's not a myth to Jesus in this moment. That's why he's praying about it. Lord, keep them from the evil one. Folks, we need to wisen up to this. See, in the Bible, there is indeed an enemy. In the Bible, there is an enemy within. In Romans chapter 7, Paul himself talks about indwelling sin. He says, why do I keep on doing the things I don't want to do? And why do I not do the things that I know I'm called to do? Lord, why is there such a wrestle in my life? And he knows the answer. It's all rhetorical questions. It's because of indwelling sin. And the Spirit is at war, war with our flesh. And we all face that and experience that, do we not? We're aware that, yeah, sometimes I do things that I know I don't want to do and I don't do things I know I should and, ah, this is so hard. It's because there's an enemy within. It's called indwelling sin and that's why in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul communicates to the Ephesian church who he dearly loves, listen, get in the divine changing room. Put off the old self because that is corrupted by deceitful desires and renew your mind by saturating yourself in this word And then put on the new self, humility and joy and generosity. And so he takes us to the divine changing room because he's aware there's an enemy in there that is corrupt by its deceitful desires. And so we need to go about the task of sanctification where we battle with that evil enemy in in our inside. And we go after it. And we seek by the grace of God to change. In the Bible, there is an enemy within. But in the Bible, there is also an enemy without. The evil one, the devil. 
Satan. The one that the Bible calls the father of lies. The the Bible says the one who has come to steal and kill and destroy. The one who the Bible says, as it refers to talking about yourself, the one who prowls around you like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. My friends, this evil one is a reality. And this evil one is without question a clear and present danger to us all. He can never, ever, make no mistake, he can never pluck you from the Father's hand. That is not possible. He doesn't have that type of power. If God has, by his grace, has chosen you and saved you, then that means 2,000 years ago he died in your place at Calvary. It means that the judge's gavel has come down on your life as justified. It means that he has declared you to be adopted and given you the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. The words guarantee and the words justification and the words adoption don't get reversed. Ever. That's why Jesus says, Lord, I have lost none that the Father has given me. And I will not lose any. Because I've declared them as righteous. I've declared them as adopted. I've declared them as justified. And I hold them. And it is my grace that will see them forward. Not their own strength. There is no way that the evil one can pluck you from salvation. But the evil one can tempt you. The evil one can lie to you. The evil one can deceive you. And the evil one can without doubt do great damage as he seeks to pull you away from the truth. And my friends, I think more often than not, as Christians, to our shame, we are altogether naive of him, as if he barely exists, as if this isn't really that true. And yet he does. And we've got to be real about it. And we've got to be honest about it. Because to be a Christian is genuinely to be at war. It is not just nicey-nice, oh, I go along on a Sunday and it's lovely. I'm sorry? You have an evil one that is prowling around you like a roaring lion. Oh, I don't fancy that. Tough. He's there. This is a reality. We must not be naive to him. We must not be naive to our own deceitful temptations of our heart. And we must be aware and alert enough then of the evil one, both the enemy within and the enemy without, so that when we approach temptations, we realize this is the enemy. We need to wisen up. And I think for us at Sovereign Grace Church, we need to wisen up. Let's be real. Listen, it's the temptation that the young person faces. When they meet a guy from work, and over time, fall in love with him. He's not a Christian. He doesn't love Jesus. He's okay that you do, but he doesn't want that for himself. So eventually, over time, he says, listen, would you marry me? And we know as Christians that the Bible makes it clear that we're not to marry an unbeliever. We get that. But our feelings say, well, but I need him. And I couldn't live without him. And you know what? I'm sure he'll change. Well, actually, probably I even feel these things because God's calling me to marry him. Yes, God's calling me to marry him. Hmm. No, God's called you not to marry an unbeliever. After that, it's just feelings. And we're tempted. We're tempted. 
and we're deceived. Because the flesh is at work. You can't rob your salvation. But he can lie to you and deceive you. It's the temptation that the 40-year-old guy who's working hard in the office and lives generally under continual responsibility. He remembers when he married his wife. She was a really good lady. And he loved his wife. And still has great affection for his wife. But over time, the responsibilities of life in his life have got the better of him. And he feels the pressure of life. He goes home and he knows that he's got to serve at home as well. And there's all these kids that are expecting great things from him. And yet there's this lady in the office who doesn't expect anything of him. And he starts to feel very attracted to by her. And he even starts to feel that maybe the Lord is calling him to get divorced from his wife and give himself to this lady as a fresh responsibility, as a fresh laying his life down for her. And he thinks, look, maybe it's wrong. But he feels it. And because he feels it, and he feels God is in it, what can he do, right? He's just got to pursue it. His friends are counseling him against it. But he started to retreat from his friends because he thinks they're all wrong. He thinks that they would just say that to him anyway. Do you not think that's a real temptation? It's the temptation of the individual who has been training hard for years, working hard for years on what they felt was what God was calling to them to in terms of their career. They've been at university for seemingly forever. And at last, the opportunity of a lifetime has arrived. Everything that they've trained for for almost a decade has arrived on their doorstep. And admittedly, this job opportunity is going to mean a lot of traveling around. So admittedly, the local church cannot feature in their new life as they pursue this career. And admittedly, as they pursue this new career, their fellowship will have to stop. And admittedly, they're going to find it hard to have a relationship with God in the community of believers in any way. But God's calling them to this, so what can they do? God's in this. And then they have an evil one saying to them, you can so do this. God is faithful. God is good. Keep going. So off they go. The Bible never talks about going Lone Ranger for Jesus. It talks about being a part of a local church where we give ourselves and commit ourselves. And if we feel that the Lord is calling us to move away, then praise God. We find then another local church that we commit to and give ourselves to for the glory of the Lord. And yet we get deceived and tempted. And sadly, it's usually me as a pastor that sees that individual three or four years later and you say, how are you going? And they are a spiritual shadow of what they used to be. They thought they could make it. But they can't. Tempted. It's the temptation of the wife who has recently lost their husband and misses him so much that the tablets on the shelf look very inviting sometimes. And she's so tempted just to take all the tablets. Because to die is gain, right? It would be better for me to be with the Lord. And even though her children are appealing to her that, Mom, we, we need you and we love you and we need you and God has a perfect plan for your future. She struggles to believe it. And she's being tempted away. Not by God. But by the evil one. My friend, spiritual dangers provided to us by a very real enemy of our faith. Are these real temptations? Are they real issues? Absolutely. And we need not be naive to them. Because as a pastor, I often sit with people 
on these types of issues, genuinely, sometimes way more than these things. And they say, I'm probably the first person that's ever had this, right? And with great regret, you inform them, sadly, you're not. Because sadly, part of my role is to pick up the pieces of people all the time. You thought you were sticking to the word. But actually, the very real enemy has pulled you away. Robbed you. Destroyed you. Deceived you. And it is with great regret that those moments take place. My friends, we need to be challenged by this prayer. Because this enemy is real. But I also think we need to be comforted by this prayer. Because on this day, note, Jesus is praying for you about it. He hasn't just abandoned you. He knows this is real and he wants you to know this is real. But then he says, Father, keep them from the evil one. He's praying for you. With you in his mind, he's saying, Lord, help them. I know how real this enemy is. So, Lord, help them to be not naive to this enemy. And Father, even more so, Lord, keep them. Folks, I want you to know you have one in your boat that is not only interested in the physical realities of your world. He's not only interested in your relationships and your jobs and your careers and your friendships and your marriages and your children. He's in your boat on all of those different things. But he's also in your boat when it comes to your spiritual realities as well. He's not leaving you. He's not forsaking you. He knows full well you are going to feel tempted away at different points. So he gives us this word and screams at us. This is it. You want it to go well in your life? You want to prosper? I want that for you too. So read this and meditate on this and apply this and it will go well for you. But then we put it on the shelf. But I'm, but I'm awful busy and I've got a lot on. And Are you mad? He says, this is it. This is the truth. So Father, sanctify them in the truth. And Lord, keep them then. Keep them from the evil one. And he does. Hebrews 4 just wonderfully says this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, what a hope, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you come to know the realities of the enemy within and the enemy without, I think you will awaken every morning and realize, Lord, I need grace today because I can get deceived today. I can get deceived within an hour and make decisions within that hour that will not pluck me from my salvation but would have grave consequences for my life, for the rest of my life. Oh, so Lord, help me. And he looks back at you and says, through my death and resurrection, I'm not only in your boat, but I've gained access to the throne of grace for you. So what do you need? Because there's grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. Number three then, the third and final thing that matters most to the Jesus about you. Number three, that you, as his disciple, would be unified in love. 
Now, mission is something that, without question, we hear a lot about at Sovereign Grace. It's not going to change anytime soon while I have breath in my body. And that is because mission is so important. We hear a lot about family, too. And the church is family. Metaphorically, we are a family. We're called by God to do life together for the glory of the Lord. And so we're not just like, oh, I feel like a brother and a sister. That's good, because you are. You know, it's a reality. It's actually something that biblically defined... You are. It's a bit like, oh, I feel like a child of the Lord. It's because you are. It's just a reality. You become a Christian. Instantly, you are a child of the Lord, and you are brothers and sisters. Metaphorically, I think, as a church, we're also a hospital. We do, on occasions, pick up body parts, and pick up injuries, and pick up sicknesses, where you're just aware, man, this person just needs great care right now. And the truth is, they're never particularly needy individuals. It's just as people walk through things, you're aware they just need distinct care right now. And church should be that. But church is also an army. And it is without question an army on a mission. And always should be. Otherwise, all we will build is sovereign grace is a ghetto of a lovely family and a lovely hospital if I get needy. But we will forget the very thing that we've been sent on, namely mission. For Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's not a call to pastors. That's a call to you. That's a call to us as individuals on our lives. Christianity equals mission. You you can't be an unmissional Christian. It, It wouldn't make sense. You are Becoming a Christian, you're adopted by the Father, you're brought into a family, and then you're sent out on mission. That's what we all are. And there is a command on our lives then to go and make disciples of all nations. In John chapter 20, Jesus says it again. He says, just as the Father has sent me, looking at his disciples who represent us yet again in that moment, just as the Father has sent me, I now send you. So Sovereign Grace Church, you're on. We're called to mission. In Romans 10, Paul then takes on the mantle and having shared the gospel in numerous places, says, listen, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Every last one of them. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will without question be dramatically saved. But how can they call upon the one whom they've never heard? His whole premise is, Romans, you've been sent. Sovereign grace. You've been sent. There are people all around Sydney. I was thinking about it last night. There are hundreds of thousands of people all around Sydney who do not know Jesus. And we then say, but I've got a lot on and my life's really busy. And There are hundreds of thousands of people running headlong to hell. How busy is too busy when that is the reality of our city? And where we are too busy, we need to change our lives because they're running headlong away from salvation. And the Savior looks at us in our eyes and says, listen, go get them. Go make disciples. As the Father has sent me, I now send you. Mission is so important. Mission is all about people meeting Jesus, as Adam pointed out so wonderfully the other week. 
A mission is therefore something I constantly want to exhort us to here in Sovereign Grace Church. It is vital then that we not build as a local church a Christian ghetto. It is, it is, it is vital. Something I feel anxious about. It is vital we not build a family that is so good that no one wants to ever leave it. We've got to be missional. We've got to take the gospel and brandish it and actually take it out. If we don't do that, I've failed you as a pastor. If you're not so excited about the gospel that it doesn't cause in your heart a desire to, I want to take it out, then I've failed you. All I've helped you see is how it applies to you, but not how we're called to take it out. This is vital, vital stuff. It is so important that we be missional. It is so important that we brandish the gospel, the power of God to change somebody's life, and we go beyond this ghetto and live in the world to win the world. Absolutely vital. You know what else is vital? It is vital that we understand that we have to be unified in love in that process. And that is so vital... Jesus prays for it here. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that. There's a so that. There's a so that to this oneness. There's a so that to this togetherness for them. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. My friends, I submit to you what he's praying about here is that which he demonstrated in chapter 13. What he's praying about here is that which he modeled so well for his disciples in chapter 13. As the King of Kings and Lord of Lords straps a towel around his waist and then begins to get on his knees and start to wash the feet of the disciples. He begins to serve them and help them see that unity and togetherness and servanthood of one another is so absolutely vital. And right at the end of that chapter, in that small discourse in chapter 13, he says, by this and through this, people, namely the world, will know that you're my disciples. And then in chapter 17, he says, Father, in effect, Lord, please help them to do this. Help them to be as one. Help them to be together. Friends, it is vital that we never stop being in the world to win the world. It is vital that we take the gospel out to the world. But it is also vital, I believe, according to the Savior, that we not divorce doing life together and the Great Commission. Because I think what he's trying to say is, they are connected. Now and again you meet somebody, they're like, I don't have time for church, I'm just so into the world evangelistically. Then you misunderstand the point of what the Savior is talking about. What he's talking about is the way you operate as a church, the way you serve one another and give yourselves to one another, the way you love for one another, should be such a bright light in your world that it will create a platform for the gospel to go forward. As they see you together as one, as they see you together loving one another and giving yourselves to one another, the very world should look on and see the Father did indeed send the Son to these people and their lives are so different. Why are they so different? heard of a great story this week of just this dude who became a Christian and it all started because he was observant of a couple's marriage. And he didn't know many people in the church prior to that. He just had world mates. But then he observed from afar this couple's marriage and he said, 
there was something different about it. And so he went along to a Christianity explorer because he was just affected by what you two have got I've never seen before. And as he got involved in Christianity Explored, he started to see how this church was relating to one another. And it was so attractive for him that he realized Jesus is real. The power of the gospel must be real because these people have something that I have not got. What is it all about? They shared the gospel with him and he became a Christian. My friends, that's the way it's meant to work. That's the way we're called to make it work. We must never divorce the way that we do life together from the Great Commission. How important is that? It's so important that 12 hours before Jesus died, he prayed for it. Folks, this is the day that Jesus prayed for you. Isn't that incredible? Standing on the edge of time and looking down at all those who are going to become Christians afterwards. He prays for you. Prays that you'd be word saturated. Prays that you would be kept Praise that you would be unified in love. And so how do we respond? Well, two thoughts. Number one, I think we respond with gratitude. Why we never lack in gratitude? How caring and kind of the Savior that 12 hours before he dies, he has you on his mind and then commits time to praying for you. We should always be grateful. As we review scripture and see moments like this, we should never fail to give thanks for all he's done. Secondarily, I think we apply it through application. James chapter 1, Pastor James tells us, listen, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Because in your doing, you'll be blessed. You'll never be blessed in your hearing. You'll be blessed as you see your face in the mirror and then go away and make some changes. Folks, I want to encourage you then, if you become aware as you review the prayer of Jesus that you're not word-saturated, then go away and make some changes. If you're aware, as you hear Jesus praying, that you'd be kept, that in reality, you are already flirting with sin. You're already doing or about to do something that you know full well the Bible says you shouldn't. Well, go away and make some changes. Because the Father who loves you and says, I know what is best for you. Listen, this is best. What you're doing is looking back at him and saying, I know what's best for myself and that isn't it. Go away and make some changes. Or if you're aware that, to be honest, you're not really giving yourself into the body, you're not really giving yourself to washing one another's feet, you're not really giving yourself to be devoted and caring for one another, then go away and make some changes. Because this is really important to the Savior. That's why he prayed about it. And so would gratitude and application then be our theme? And would blessing, as accordingly the Savior's desire in John 17, be our fruit? Let's pray. Savior, how can we thank you enough for praying for us? Lord, it's... It's dazzling when we look in on moments like this in your word and we realize we're not just coming across narrative of history. But our faces are seen here. Our names are seen here. On your mind was each face in this room in this moment. The maker of heaven and earth pauses to pray for us. Oh Lord, would you help us then to apply this? 
Would you help us not only to be grateful, but help us to apply this truth. Our Lord, as we apply these things, would we truly be blessed then in our doing? Lord, where we have been deceived, where we are being tempted away by the enemy. Oh Lord, I echo the prayer of the Savior for this local church. Lord, would you keep us? And would you give each one the strength to stand firm to truth? And would we truly then all be like that tree, planted by streams of living water, fruitful, nourished, prospering in all that we do? Father, thank you for praying for us. And would our lives then be built around these truths? What matter most to you? Would we take it? Would we heed it? Would we apply it? And would blessing be the fruit? In Jesus' name.